Bring it in. Read option 121. Coming at you morning after the NBA draft. I uh, had to be up crazy early for work, so could not get one out. Recorded at least Thursday night. And I wanted to wait until what happened and what we saw in the draft. Uh, and what turned out to be a really exciting draft. Uh, very weird up and down. Some drama at the top. Uh, as well as a bunch of trades, nothing major on the trade market. Some of the names that were, have been floating around, you know, on the Twitter sphere the last couple of days. So I, I would say it was crazier than most drafts, but not as crazy as what people were kind of building it up to be. Uh, that being said, draft nights, whether it's the NBA or the NFL draft, are always, always fun. And there's a bunch of stuff to get into with it. So we're going to break down the whole draft. I am solo today. Uh, but we have a couple other things of news and notes I want to hit. Um, we're going to talk about the Kyrie Irving situation, his apparent, uh, not quite request, but basically a request if, you know, they're not able to figure out a long-term deal with the Brooklyn Nets. So we'll touch on that. Uh, but we're going to open up here with the Arch Manning news. Um, we haven't talked a whole lot of college football this offseason outside of a couple of things here and there with NIL and some other stuff. Um, and we're actually going to have Dusty Dvorak, who is the number three analyst for ESPN, uh, former Oklahoma Sooner, uh, former Chicago Bear, and uh, he do, he's the number three team for ESPN. He also hosts a show on SiriusXM, Dusty and Danny in the morning. A uh, good buddy of mine, he will be joining us next week, and we're going to kind of talk about a bunch of stuff college football related, but we're also going to hit a lot on this Arch Manning story because anyone who's followed college football at any level over the last couple of years, you know who Arch Manning is, right? Uh, primarily, you know who Arch Manning is because of his last name, right? He is the nephew of Eli and Peyton Manning, the son of Cooper Manning, who you've probably been forced to watch in commercials and some just borderline terrible <laughs> forced content. But Coop, Cooper seems like a good dude, seems very funny, seems has that likability that a lot of the Mannings carry. Uh, Arch Manning is a stud. Number one quarterback recruit in his class. Uh, he will be joining the Texas Longhorns, who already have the number one quarterback recruit from the 2020 class in Quinn Ewers, who initially went to Ohio State for his first year, reclassified so he could go there, ended up leaving Ohio State after a year. I don't think he played. I think if he if he did play, it was like six snaps. And he is now a Texas Longhorn after this past season. So this is where we're sitting right now. The University of Texas, who the Texas's back crowd, has been quite vocal for many, many years. And, and flat out, just Texas has not been back. They've not been anywhere close to back. They have not had a consistent coach. They haven't won a national championship since 2004-2005 season with Mac Brown and Vince Young in one of the greatest college football games ever played. And since then, they have a worse record in the Big 12 than teams like Baylor. They have worse record than teams like, uh, obviously, Oklahoma is the big one. Oklahoma State, I believe, they finished seventh in that rankings. Kansas State, TCU, all had better records in the Big 12 over the last decade than the University of Texas. Well, the fact that they've pulled in now two number one quarterbacks in their respective classes is impressive. Uh, I've been very vocal on this pod over the last couple of years about how much of a fan I am of Steve Sarkeesian as a coach, what he's gotten out of his players, the difference in his tone when he's been at Big 12 media days, when, when, when he's taken over that team than during his time when he was the head coach at Washington, when he was the head coach at USC. He obviously battled a bunch of personal issues along the way. At the end of the day, you're going to have two awesome quarterbacks on the same roster at some point. Now, by the time 2023 rolls around, technically, if Quinn Ewers puts together two good years, that would be Arch Manning's uh, true freshman year in 2023. So you would think, all right, well, Quinn Ewers will be second year starting, third year out of high school. He'll probably start that year. But as we've seen with like guys like 
Spencer Rattler, there is no guarantee. Now, we don't know if he's going to live up to the hype that he's carried with him over the course of the last two years, right? That is, is a heavy burden to bear for anyone who is 19 years old. And remember, he did reclassify. So I believe he was had just turned 18 when he stepped on foot on when he stepped on campus at Ohio State in the beginning of the 2021 season. So by doing this, we now have Quinn Ewers at Texas. And assuming he gets a chance to play and plays well, and they're competitive, which in year two of the Steve Sarkeesian era, we would expect Texas to be taking that step forward that we know their fan base is expecting from them. But it's not just about one position, right? We go over this all the time. Texas and Oklahoma are getting ready to move to the SEC, right? So right now on paper, it looks great, right? You've got these two unbelievable quarterbacks, and we'll get to a little more on Arch Manning in a second. But you've got these two unbelievable quarterbacks now. Quinn Ewers, by all accounts, has an absolute howitzer for an arm. He's got a mullet behind him. He's made over a million dollars already in NIL deals. Quinn Ewers has a lot of upside. But again, we've never seen him play college football. So where does this put Texas in the Texas's back ranks, right? How, how back is Texas when, as we sit here, they do have two top-level quarterback prospects who are going to be there within the next you know calendar year give or take depending on when arched officially steps on foot at texas i would say it's a pretty good sign right because arch manning alone carries a lot of weight quinn ewers carries a decent amount of weight i mean again he was the number one quarterback prospect got stuck behind cj stroud never really seemed like he was going to fit there he's from texas i think he wanted to play at texas Texas hires Steve Sarkeesian last year to step in and be the head coach there. And I don't think he was really, I think there's probably too much going on for him to have decided, all right, now I'm going to go to Texas, play with Sark, see what's going on. Well, he's there now. He's going to get more than likely at least two years, but next year, the 2022 season, Quinn Ewers will be a red shirt freshman technically. And if he plays two really good lights out years, he'll be in bona fide top five pick in the NFL draft. If he kind of plays all right this year, then all of a sudden we're stepping into a world where Arch Manning comes on as a true freshman and is going to be trying to battle out with a former number one overall quarterback prospect in Quinn Ewers. So Texas, on the surface, it seems like this is an amazing thing, right? I mean, Arch Manning, he's not like his, his uncle's. He's a really, really good athlete. If you knew Cooper Manning, uh, or if you know anything about Cooper Manning, he actually was a wide receiver at Ole Miss before Eli Manning was the quarterback there. Cooper was a really, really good athlete, right? Eli, Peyton, they were great quarterbacks, but they didn't have that running ability that Archie Manning, their dad, had, who was, you know, Michael Vick before Michael Vick, right? He was, he was a scrambler, right? He played in the days when he was with the Saints on those terrible Saints teams where he was the only good player and had to run around like a chicken with his head cut off and had to just scramble and make plays. And he was an all-time quarterback Hall of Famer because of that. But his two sons that ended up being Hall of Fame quarterbacks themselves and Peyton and Eli, they didn't have that athletic ability. Well, Cooper had it, and now his son Arch has it. So Arch, really, really good athlete, can run around, great arm strength, and presumably – He's coming from a, a lineage and has learned more things about the NFL and about quarterback and about college and about all football as a whole than any of us will ever know. And he's only 18 years old. So I'm fascinated to see how this plays out because since Trevor Lawrence, we have not had a, a can't miss top prospect, right? Spencer Rattler was highly re recruited, but he didn't quite turn out the way that we thought. Caleb Williams has looked amazing, but we don't know what he's going to be like at USC next year. Quinn Ewers, we haven't seen him play. So we have no idea. We haven't had somebody this electric coming out of high school since Trevor Lawrence. And before that, it was even further. I mean, there are always guys who come out in these quarterback rankings when they're in high school that you're like, oh, this kid's going to be the next great thing. This kid's going to be unbelievable. Arch Manning at least has like the reputation and the name and the lineage and the hair and all that shit that he definitely should come in and be a really – really good quarterback 
but they also have a really talented quarterback on the roster already. Now, which is why I say on the surface, if this is how it ends up going, right? If this is the direction that they end up going for the University of Texas, right? They have these two quarterbacks, two years of Quinn Ewers. Arch gets to sit on the bench for a year. He'll come in as a redshirt freshman or as a sophomore and help take Texas to that next level, right? That's a perfect world scenario. That's what everyone's looking at on the surface. But the one thing I got to keep reminding people is that this is Texas, all right? Texas has had really good quarterback recruits in the past. They've had really good recruiting classes in the past. And for whatever reason, they can't seem to get out of their way. It's very similar to the Dallas Cowboys. For whatever reason, the Cowboys can't get out of their own way. And the Dallas Cowboys have not been back to the promised land in a very long time. The University of Texas has not been back to the promised land in a very long time. Now, I like Steve Sarkeesian. And I think Sark's going to do a really good job to help build this program the way it needs to be. I know they're going to be able to put up a lot of points. But I think the more realistic outcome here, especially given the lack of recruiting along both lines of scrimmage in position players, which again, Arch Manning over the next year, I think is going to have a huge impact on wide receivers and running backs and tight ends and hopefully offensive linemen who want to come to Texas to play with Arch Manning. But as it stands right now, they haven't recruited at an elite level yet. And this is the second year for Sark. This was the year I was expecting Sark to kind of take over the recruiting reins and put his stamp on the recruiting circuit. And it hasn't really come to fruition yet. Not to say that it won't. It just hasn't happened yet. So more realistically, I think this plays out more like Caleb Williams and Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma last year, where Spencer Rattler plays one good season, and then his second year, there's this star quarterback recruit who comes in. Spencer Rattler plays like shit. He gets benched. And then all of a sudden, Caleb Williams comes in, and Oklahoma kind of gets turned around. Because I believe, if I'm picking between the two, I believe in Arch Manning. I, I think he's going to be a stud. I, there's very few times where I'm willing to just drink the Kool-Aid that the rest of the sports fandom world, the the collective us, the royal uh, we, as as our friend Chris Plank put it, but in this case, I'm kind of drinking it, right? I'm kind of all in on Arch Manning. I don't see a world where Arch Manning isn't a really good player. He's got size. He's got speed. He's got great arm strength. He's got an unbelievable resource, resources between his grandfather, his two uncles, and his dad coming from that family. And he's going to go to a place that has plenty of resources to be able to go out, use NIL money to get top-tier all other you know skill position guys, hopefully good offensive linemen. And who knows? Maybe Texas will be back. But as Lee Corso always says, right? Not so fast. Not so fast, my friend. This is Texas still. And we'll see how it turns out. It's a it's a monumental get for Texas and for Steve Sarkeesian. I can't even imagine his reaction when when that came through. The only other thing I'll say here before we move on to the Kyrie Irving stuff, we still have a year and a half until this kid's going to be playing football at the University of Texas. We got a year until he's going to be getting ready for camp at the University of Texas. If you don't think that there's going to be teams, Nick Saban, these other top-tier guys are not going to be moving mountains, heaven and earth, to try to get Arch Manning to decommit and commit to them, I think you're kidding yourself. But then again, I, I would expect him to stay because I think the people around Arch Manning are going to help him do that. So a report came out yesterday from Woj about Kyrie Irving and Kyrie Irving not necessarily saying that he's requesting a trade or wanting to be out, but it was that kind of like, oh, no, no, I'm not asking for a trade. But if you did trade me these are the list of teams i would want to go to and we've seen this before in the nba we've seen players do this exact same trade model right on top of that a subsequent report came out about kevin durant saying that he's not been particularly happy with how this offseason has unfolded and there's a bunch of different places that you know we can break off into this right first and foremost the colossal failure it would be by the brooklyn nets if somehow they were to lose not only Kyrie Irving, but also Kevin Durant, or even if they just 
lost Kyrie Irving, and then you have an unhappy Kevin Durant who's going into his 16th season in the NBA, that's not going to bode well for you in the long term here, right, Brooklyn Nets? So uh, they also have, including the draft last night, five picks of theirs belong to the Houston Rockets. Now, I think two or three of them are pick swaps, and two, and then the other ones are their actual picks. Um, but I'm, I, this is not good, all right, for the Brooklyn Nets. And at the same time, I kind of don't blame them. I kind of don't blame them for wanting to, to for, for being frustrated with Kyrie Irving, right? Because at the end of the day, like, all they want is, is they just want Kyrie Irving to show the fuck up. All right, and this isn't even about, about the, his COVID stance. I mean, it's about his just availability. Even before the COVID stuff and the, and the vaccine stuff that he, we dealt with this year, he's played in only 52% of possible games for the Brooklyn Nets in three seasons. They've won one playoff series. And he got hurt in that playoff series. When it ended up going seven games against the eventual champion Milwaukee Bucks last year during the playoffs. Now, there's no one on earth who can deny Kyrie Irving's skill set, his shot making, his handle. I've said multiple times on this podcast, I think he's the best finisher in the history of the NBA, better than AI, better than Isaiah. His, his ability to get and finish at just absurd angles is, is unlike anything else I've ever seen. But at what point do NBA teams just go enough is enough? And when you look at the teams that were on his list, right? It was the Lakers. It was the, it was the Mavs. It was the Sixers. It was the Clippers. It was the Knicks. They were, they were all teams that literally cannot afford him. And on top of it, too, they're all teams that don't have any sort of actual assets that the Brooklyn Nets will want. Because, I mean, look, you can throw a million picks at the Brooklyn Nets. And if they were bad and they had all of their picks here and they didn't sell them all to go get James Harden two years ago – that would be one thing, right? Because at least they would hold on to their picks. They'd be bad. And then they would accumulate a bunch of what would inevitably be, you know, 20 to 30 in that 20 to 30 range in the first round for, you know, the Clippers or the Lakers or the Sixers. And one of these teams that are going to be in the playoffs every single year. The problem is, is they don't have those picks, right? They don't have their own picks that would actually be valuable. Those all belong to the Houston Rockets. So they need actual players back. They need a young player that you can at least sell somebody on to try to build around, to try to reposition a little bit and figure something out. And if they were to trade both of them, you might get enough back. Not necessarily sending both of them to the same team, but if you made two trades and sent Kyrie Irving one way place and Kevin Durant somewhere else, and you got a decent haul of at least young players and you could kind of rebuild, that at least gives you something. But again, thinking about the colossal failure that that would be on the Brooklyn Nets part for this entire KD Kyrie weird experience. Now, I said it before, I don't blame Brooklyn for getting frustrated and, and wanting some sort of commitment from Kyrie. From my understanding of what's been reported, Kyrie only wants a, or Kyrie wants a long-term deal. The Nets only want to kind of give them a one and one, right? A one and then we'll see how you do. Like they want to see some sort of actual commitment from him that he's going to be around, that he's going to try, he's going to play. At this point in his career, he's a defensive liability. Yeah, the dude's a walking bucket, but a walking bucket that only shows up half a game, half the time, what is that doing for you? It's not really doing you anything at all. I was talking to my roommate who's also a Sixers fan, and he was like, dude, Kyrie on the Sixers. And I'm like, wait. How? How would you ever want Kyrie Irving to be next to James Harden? Again, we just saw this happen, what, a year ago? Not less than a year ago? Why? What gives you any semblance of a reason to think that that would be a good decision? Even if the Sixers got KD and you had KD and James Harden and Embiid, I still wouldn't love that if it was KD and Embiid and then you could, you know, use the rest of your money to, to put in good role players. I'm with that. This is no longer the you need three stars league. That ship has sailed. I mean, you need quality role players and depth. The whole Golden State Warriors run with KD was so absurd, it broke how teams work. And when KD left Golden State, 
when LeBron left Cleveland, it went from being, oh, we need three to no, we need two, right? Think about what that Lakers team was. It was in B, it was LeBron and Anthony Davis and a bunch of good role players, right? You can say, Aria, oh, yeah, but what about the Milwaukee Bucks? I mean, yeah, they're paying a lot of money to Drew Holiday, but Drew Holiday is a probably like a top 30 to top 40 player in the league. Like, I wouldn't call him a, a, a third superstar. This isn't, you know, Chris Bosch, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron all getting together. This isn't KD and Kevin Durant and, you know, Clay and Draymond getting together, right? Like, this is completely different. This is a world where it's like, hey, we need two superstars and we'll fill in the rest with depth. We just saw the two, look at the two teams that were in the finals this year, right? How many superstars were in that NBA finals? I would say Steph, definitely. Jason Tatum, probably. He's right on the cusp of superstardom. He's definitely a star. Jalen Brown, kind of a star. I'd say he's closer to Drew Holiday than he is, you know, Giannis. He's closer to Drew Holiday than he is Steph. Right. And Jalen Brown's a good player, but it was Al Horford and Marcus Smart and Robert Williams and all these solid players around him. And with the Warriors, it was the experience. Yes, but it was also Steph and then a bunch of really good role players and two guys with a lot of experience and Clay and Draymond that helped them get over that hump. I mean, even the East Graphics finals teams, the Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler, bam, two stars. OK, and then after that. Who else is there? They went seven games. All right. Uh, go ahead and take a look at the Dallas Mavericks. You have Luka, one star, and then a bunch of really good, you know, role players and pieces. They need another star. I mean, Jalen Brunson was the second best player on the team, and they got to the finals, at least the Western Conference finals. Phoenix, same way. I mean, the league is not built around, oh, we need to accumulate these stars. So why anyone – of these teams, whether it's the Lakers. I mean, the Lakers just tried to do it with Russell Westbrook, who's not even close to a star anymore. But even if the Lakers did, let's say they somehow did find a way, they found a third-party team, the Houston Rockets, the Charlotte Hornets, or someone with a ton of cap space who would eat up Russell Westbrook's $47 million contract, by the way, which, again, no one is going to do. But let's say somebody did do that, and then you're going to have LeBron, AD, and Kyrie, and I already know what you're thinking. Jeff, dude that would be, they'd be sick. They would be so good. Who else is on that team? You talking about Quinn Cook coming back? You can't tell me the Lakers would have been better, wouldn't have been better last season if they had spent the money that they eventually spent on Russell Westbrook to keep Kyle Kuzma, to keep Contavious uh, Caldwell-Pope, to keep Alex Caruso. That team is significantly better with a healthy LeBron and a healthy AD than whatever the fuck that Russell Westbrook gamble was. So put him on any of these teams. If, if, if the Clippers want Kyrie, right, then it's Paul George, Kawhi, and Kyrie. Right? Well, you're giving up all of those uh, ancillary side players, those role players that you're going to have. So, again, we're talking about, like, G League-level guys. If the Sixers did it and it's Harden, Kyrie, and Embiid, all right, well, you're giving up Maxi in that trade. You're giving up Thibel and you're giving up Tobias, all right? So who else is going to be there? George Nang? Who else, who else is going to be on your roster at that point? Is Furkan now going to be put in the starting lineup? Is that going to help us? No, that's not helping shit. And on top of it all, the arrogance of Kyrie is so unbelievably appalling. I'm so sick of this dude. I get how good he is. I know that talent wins out in sports more often than not. And you know what? Players in the NBA ha have all the leverage. It has completely shifted. Ben Simmons quitting on a team, not showing up, faking mental health issues, faking back injuries, and, and still getting his way was the nail in the coffin of NBA front offices ever having the final piece of leverage. They might have better leverage. They might have leverage earlier on throughout the season but at some point at some point in the process the player is always going to win out the player is always going to win out 
That is where we're at. So as much as I don't like Kyrie and I'm sick of this Kyrie shit, if they're not going to offer him a long-term deal, which they shouldn't based off of his performance over the last five years since he requested the trade from Cleveland back in 2017, publicly lying about wanting to stay in Boston, not showing up to games, can't stay healthy. And then once he did come back, right, because we kept talking about the, oh, he's playing like every other day or like once or twice a week because of road trips, because they weren't in Brooklyn and Kyrie was unbelievable. It's like, yeah, you can be fucking amazing when you're that talented and your body has none of the wear and tear on it that every other player is getting. You are fresher, quicker, more rested than everyone else on the court. And you're arguably more talented than everyone on the court. What do you think was going to happen? But then the second he had to play every single day or every other day, like he had to do in the playoffs, he was terrible. He had one good game. This playoff run, game one, he was awesome. Super efficient in that game. And then Jason Tatum hits the buzzer beater in, in, in Boston. And he was terrible for games two through four. Why anyone would would waste their time on Kyrie is crazy. I just, he, in my book, he is the ultimate, that's somebody else's problem player. That is, he in somebody else, let somebody else make that mistake. And the thing is, somebody probably will do it. But I commend the Brooklyn Nets for not necessarily just bowing down. But in the NBA, you also can't just lose the asset for nothing because the craziest shit Kyrie could do. And this is technically on the table, but it would be completely antithetical to anything else we've ever seen from an NBA superstar. But then again, everything Kyrie does is completely unprecedented. So maybe this isn't that crazy, but he could just opt out of his player option this year, which would pay him over, I think, $35 million and go take the league vet minimum and sign somewhere else to, to prove a point. Which, you know what? That wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world considering what we've seen from Kyrie Irving. What I'm saying and what most NBA front offices should be saying, that's someone else's problem. Let somebody else make that mistake. The NBA draft was last night. With the first overall pick, the Orlando Magic selected Paolo Benchero. Now, this came as a surprise. If anyone was following on social media or following any of the sports books, Jabari Smith out of Auburn was expected to be the number one overall pick uh, for about a week to two weeks. He was the heavy favorite. Uh, in my personal opinion, and this is going to sound like revisionist history because I didn't get a chance to talk about this before the draft, Paolo was my favorite player in the draft. Um, he's who I would have taken first overall. Uh, and it was really close between him and Chet. I like Jabari Smith a lot. I think Jabari Smith's going to be a really good NBA player. Um, I could see him maybe making a couple all NBA teams, maybe an all-star team here and there if he kind of hits a ceiling. But he has a lot more development to do in the shot creation and especially with his ball handling and dribbling, which is not very good. But then again, we said the same thing about Jalen Brown, and now Jalen Brown's been an all-star and played in the NBA Finals. So who's to say, right? Who's who's to say, you know, that I know fucking shit. Um, I liked Paolo the most because I think he had the most in his game right now. Six foot ten. He's a forward, could be a small ball five if he if he develops more on the defensive side of the ball. Uh, decent shooter, not lights out from three, but has the mechanics. Good free throw shooter, which usually is a good translator to how they will shoot and how they will perform in the NBA. Um, and to me, he's got a little bit of this Jason Tatum-esque career at, uh, at Duke, right? I mean, he can do things that are guard-like as a forward, as a 6'10 forward, but he's not a guy who forces it. You can use him on the high pick and roll. Uh, he's already he's a good screener. He's a good ball handler. He's a good passer, uh, but he's smart. And he also has this instinct that I love in prospects, which is like when he knew he was the best player on that Duke team, but that Duke team was also stacked with ESPN top 50 guys. And I'm pretty sure four out of the five starters were all in the top 50 recruits in the country. So that Duke team was fucking loaded. Uh, what makes Paolo so special to me, though, is throughout the course of a game, he wouldn't force things. He wouldn't be like, hey, I have to go take this game over. I have to, I have to go put up a million shots. I got to start hitting fadeaway threes. He played within the system until he was needed to, right? 
you think of the second half against Texas Tech, right, which is an Elite Eight game, ends up sending Duke to the Final Four. Paolo was unbelievable in the last, like, 10 minutes of that game. Made every play, made every right decision, and hit a lot of really, really tough shots. That instinct of just, like, I need to take this game over because I am the best player on this team, even though he's smart enough to know, hey, I got to get everybody else involved here. I love Paolo a lot. Um, what was weird about this pick was just that everyone did think that it was going to be Jabari. And at the very last second, the Magic draft Paolo. Never had a visit with him, never came in for his medicals, never came in with it for an official workout with the Magic, um, which, you know, Red Auerbach used to do. You know, if he really liked a player, he didn't want anyone else to know that he liked them. So to try to throw them off the scent, he would basically just lie and, and you know, pretend that he didn't have – you know, he had no interest in, and then oh, surprise, surprise, right hour back draft this guy. Uh, with the first overall pick, I typically want to see upside. And I think the one knock you can put on Paolo is, it's not even a knock. It's just that he is unquestionably between the top three guys, him, Chet Holmgren, and Jabari Smith. He is unquestionably the best offensive player right now in terms of his total game. Some people will look at that and say, oh, that means he's got a lower ceiling. I think he has a higher, as high a ceiling, if not higher than Jabari. Um, Chet's ceiling is off the charts. So I think it's really hard to compare any, you know, if you're going ceiling alone, Chet Holmgren's the number one overall pick, uh, but it's also a lot riskier. Paolo, high floor already. And I think his ceiling is still really, really high. You know, I said before, he reminded me a lot of Jason Tatum, the way Jason Tatum played at Duke, where he was able to create a lot of shots. He was able to take guys off the dribble a little bit, but he also had a pretty good post game. He had a good mid-range jumper, wasn't a great three-point shooter, um, but was able to develop that. And I think Paolo has a chance to kind of do that in, in very similar ways, but playing as more of like a, a four to kind of like semi-point four um, and, and again, some of the stuff you can do with him already off the of screen actions, off the high pick and roll, like Paolo is going to be a really, really good player. And I think he'll fit really well with the young nucleus he has. It's, it's a lot of guys who can all create shots. Franz Wagner has been really good. Markel Fultz, when he came back, was really impressive. I think he, he's starting to kind of come into his own. Uh, still not a great shooter, but he's getting much better, much more competent at it. Uh, they still have Jonathan Isaac, who coming off of, you know, a couple of really tough injuries, Hopefully we see him come back because when he was healthy, he was a stud. I love Cole Anthony as a six-man kind of guy. I mean, the Magic have a nice young nucleus of really good young talent, and I'm excited to see what they have. Um, we'll get to them in a little bit here. Probably not the best young nucleus, especially if there's another move or two that uh, another team makes, but that's kind of my take here, Paolo going number one. Number two, uh, you had Chet Holmgren. I love the Chet Holmgren pick for Oklahoma City. I thought it was absolutely perfect. Uh, the Thunder also got uh, one of my favorite players in this draft, Usman Jang, who is a French player, played for the New Zealand Breakers, um, but is a French guy. Um, the two of them are just quintessential Thunder picks, two guys who have insane upside. Chet Holmgren, seven foot, 195 pounds. The body frame is scary. The way he runs doesn't necessarily look like an athlete. Like we kind of talked about the same thing with like Zion and some other guys in years past who um, when they run, they just, it doesn't look like a guy who's the number two overall pick in a league with the best athletes in the world, but he is because he's so fucking skilled. I mean, he's so versatile defensively. He's seven feet tall, can defend the rim, can swat shots like it's nobody's business, can step out and guard guys on the perimeter. Uh, he can do so much for you defensively. And then offensively, he basically played as a guard at, at Gonzaga at seven feet tall. Not necessarily a point guard, but the way they positioned him at the top of the key, kind of rotating around, doesn't really have much of a post move or post game. But that's kind of why I love the fact that they paired him with Jang and they have a couple other guys there on that Oklahoma City team where it's, I don't think they're going to ask Chet to be a five offensively. I think it's going to be a lot of ball movement. I think it's going to be a lot of him and SGA playing off each other on pick and rolls, right? The pick and pop game with Chet Holmgren and SGA should be fucking lethal. And on top of that, too, you got a guy who can shoot lights out. And the other thing, too, is like Chet Holmgren had the fourth amount of – had the fourth highest usage rating on Gonzaga, right? This is the number one recruit coming into last year. 
going to Gonzaga, had the fourth highest usage rating because he did everything he was asked to do, and he did it all perfectly, right? Like Chet didn't do more than he was asked, didn't make any mistakes, was an incredible defensive player, and then was a lethal shooter and a lethal scorer for them when they needed to. He was a, a massive, if not the number one reason why that Gonzaga team was the number one team in the country for the majority of the year. And only one other Gonzaga kid got drafted, and it wasn't until the second round. So it's not like this was some loaded Gonzaga team like we were talking about with Paolo and all these other top guys. I mean, four guys from that Duke team went number went in the first round of this year's draft. That Duke team was special in terms of its NBA talent. Gonzaga didn't really have that, and there's a chance that the other kid from Gonzaga may not ever really see the floor. Chet Holmgren is a matchup nightmare, and I think his floor – his floor, his worst case scenario is, is injuries. His body never develops. He needs to fill out. I mean, the dude eats like 3,000 calories a day and still does not have an ounce of fat on him. If you look at his dad, which is kind of a, a dumb old scout thing that you're like, oh, well, look how his dad has. And his dad did fill out because there is at least some sort of precedent for that. But I, I think his floor realistically, if he stays healthy, is like an Al Horford kind of guy. You know, just a really solid player defensively, maybe makes an all-star team here and there, um, except I think he's a much better shooter. So I think he, it's like if Al Horford was coming up today and was in this year's draft coming out of Florida, he would have been shooting threes at a much younger age and probably be a much better three-point shooter. And already Al Horford's a pretty good three-point shooter, and he's added that part of his game. So I think kind of a, a seven-foot kind of weird-looking body version of Al Horford's kind of his floor, and his ceiling could be – one of the best best 10 players in the league. I mean, he he is that special defensively. I mean, he could be a, a Rudy Gobert-type rim defender, except he also can go down and bury threes and can also bring the ball up and can also initiate the offense and can also pick and pop and, and can also hang in the corner. And if you get forget about him, he's going to shoot 40-plus percent from three and draw corner threes. Like, his ceiling is the best player in this draft. Uh, he just has tools that no one else has. And I think, again, that pairing with him and SGA in Oklahoma City is going to be awesome to follow. Uh, Jabari Smith goes three eventually to the Houston Rockets. Um, Jabari Smith, amazing defender already. Uh, insane athlete, 6'10", huge, really high release. If you look at him right now, like right now as a rookie, he should be Richard Lewis, Right. Rashard Lewis was so good during those years in Seattle and in Orlando because he was six foot 10. He shot the ball above his head. You couldn't block his three. You couldn't really contest his three. And he was one of the best shooters in the NBA. He was also a really good defensive player, a really good athlete, could rebound. And again, I think Jabari Smith can walk into the NBA right now and be kind of like that. However, it's the room of growth. It's the growth that concerns me with Jabari Smith. Not to say that he can't add more because there's a really good chance that he does, but the dude can't really dribble. He can't create anything on his own. Now, to his defense, he played with two horrible guards at Auburn, like, like two of the worst guards in the entire SEC level bad at Auburn. Jabari, that wasn't his fault, right? And even though that does hurt him and hurt his development, I think, while there with Bruce Pearl. And there's so much to love about Jabari. Again, the defense, I think he's going to step into the league and be an amazing defensive player right away. I think he's going to come into the league and be able to shoot 40%. His jump stroke already is absolutely gorgeous. Um, his athleticism, he can fly. He's a lob threat to cut, right? Backdoor cuts, lobbing up. Like He's going to have some highlight reel dunks. He's going to hit some ridiculous shots. He can't break anybody down off the dribble. He can't get by people with the ball in his hands at the top of the key. So what really concerns me is like, yeah, he's, you know, you can look at it half glass, half full, glass, half, half empty, right? Like, oh man, he's coming in and it's already basically Richard Lewis. And you can also come in and say, yeah, but he might only ever be Richard Lewis. And if you're getting Richard Lewis at the third overall pick, I mean, hey, Richard Lewis is a great player, had a hell of a career. Is that the guy you want at number three? I hope that's not what his career turns out to be, because if he does develop a handle, if he does start to be able to take guys out and create his own shot, not just getting set up for, for threes and hitting step backs and fadeaways, because that's all he can do. 
Jabari Smith could be, again, the best player in this draft. I think any of the top three guys, and I think there's probably a couple other ones who end up getting drafted here who could very comfortably end up being the single best player in this draft. I think there's probably five guys I would pick. Um, Jabari Smith, I think, has upside through the roof, but I also think he has the most work to do to get there. Chet has the highest upside because he's just unlike anything else we've ever seen before. But Jabari's upside could be Kevin Durant-ish. Not Kevin Durant, but could be Kevin Durant-ish. But Kevin Durant's seven foot and has one of the best handles in the NBA. And that's the thing that Jabari needs to develop. And KD had that at Texas, and it only got better at the, end, in the, at the NBA level. Jabari Smith hasn't had it yet at Auburn, and I think we need to see it moving forward. Um, number four, the Kings. This is a weird situation, right? Because the consensus fourth best player in this draft was Jaden Ivey out of Purdue. Um, but Jaden Ivey pretty publicly said he wanted nothing to do with the Sacramento Kings. And the Kings were going to try to shop that pick around. There was a lot of talks. John Collins in Atlanta potentially trying to move up. But I don't think the – where did Atlanta – forget where Atlanta ended up picking. I think it was at 16. That was going to be way too low for, for the Kings to draft. Um Indiana at six was another one there, but they also just made that trade with Sabonis. And I think it's kind of a weird thing about teams who just made trades with each other. It's kind of how I feel about the Nets and the Sixers. Like if there was ever a KD or Kyrie trade, like I just have a hard time imagining like, oh yeah, like we're basically just swapping out rosters for each other's. Um, that seems kind of weird to me. I, uh, I didn't love the pick from the Kings here. Keegan Murray out of Iowa, mainly just because, I think he's going to be a really good pro. Like, again, I think he's going to be a really solid pro, but Keegan Murray doesn't really offer much other than pretty good post defense, rim run a little bit, not an explosive athlete. Um, not a, 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 He's a good shooter. Uh, he's definitely going to be like a corner three dead eye kind of corner, like a George Nang kind of dude or, or PJ Tucker. Like those dudes who just drill every single corner. Every time you see – Grant Williams or any of those dudes in the corner popping up corner threes are like, fuck, that's going in. Danny Green was that way for a long time. Uh, he's definitely going to have that. Uh, and, and I think there's, he's, he has a chance to have some more to his game. The concerns is Keegan Murray just turned 22 or turns 22 this summer. So if Keegan Murray was 18, 19 after his freshman year, one and done and had the same skill set, I'd be all in, but he's 22 and the Kings are still, you know, a lot of pieces away from really making a run here. Uh, I think the fit is really good with what they need. Drafting another guard in Jaden Ivey probably would have been a stretch, but the Keegan Murray selection at number four overall, you know, I would have rather them seen get, you know, Benedict Matherin or taking the gamble on Shaden Sharp or, you know, hell, even Dyson Daniels, one of those guys, I would have liked that better than, than Keegan Murray. But at the same time, Keegan Murray, He's going to be an adult in the room when he steps on, right? Like that, there is something to say about guys who come out and do that. Um, I, I think what makes this pick so bad is the fact that it was the Kings. You know, if there was another team, if the Pacers had the exact same roster and were drafting in the same spot, you'd be like, oh, you know, I may not love it, but, you know, I, I kind of see what they're doing here. The Kings, it's just like, you know, in 2011, they drafted Jimmerford at one spot ahead of Clay Thompson, right? Cup, uh, the next year they drafted – uh, someone, I, someone who's not was no longer in the league. One spot ahead of Damian Lillard, uh, they drafted famously Marvin Bagley. One spot ahead of Luka Doncic and Trey Young. Right after that, right. So there is uh, a history with the Kings and the fact that they haven't been to the playoffs since the or, or mid to early two thousands, where it was like it, it made it all feel worse, if that makes sense. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. Uh, and the last pick of the top five, who is a player that I am really high on, um, the Pistons take Jaden Ivey. And the Pistons, to me, are the only team that I think have done a, have a more exciting young nucleus than the Orlando Magic. And I still think there's room for them to go out and make another move here in free agency. I think DeAndre Ayton is a very realistic possibility for the Detroit Pistons. Um, Jaden Ivey's just an explosive freak of nature guard. Uh, would have liked to see him shoot the ball better. But the weirdest thing about Jaden Ivan, the reason why I'm particularly very high on him is he played on that Purdue team that was insane offensively, right? But he also played with Zach Eady and another seven foot. Purdue put out two lanky, slow, seven foot white guys out there at the same time with 
one of the best athletes, if not the best athlete in this year's entire draft in Jaden Ivey. So he really couldn't do a whole lot. And he also had that terrible game when they lost to St. Peter's, right? They lost to the, the, the 15 seeded St. Peter's who went on that miracle run. Um, that's going to hurt you, right? That's going to hurt you reputation wise. It's, it's not when you play badly against St. Peter's and Doug Eater, it, you know, Dougie, Dougie stash is checking you up. That's a bad look for you, man. Uh, but that being said, not all of that was Jaden Ivey's fault. The whole team played like shit. And I don't think all of this, you know, I don't think the whole season and some of the questions that people have about him and his ability to set up other guys is, is necessarily fair. But the best part about this is he is the absolute perfect guy to put next to last year's number one overall pick in Cade Cunningham, who I think is a superstar. I was so impressed with everything I saw from Cade Cunningham this season. Like I, and at some point this summer, I'm going to do like a, a, a rankings of the, the top young players in the NBA, you know, guys who are like 22 and younger kind of ranking. And Cade Cunningham is going to be very, very high on that list. I love Cade Cunningham. At his size, 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, and his ability to basically be your point guard, but he also kind of plays – he plays wing on defense, shoots the ball well, gets everyone else involved, initiates your offense. I mean, he's the perfect – Jaden Ivey is the perfect guy with his athleticism, his shot making, his ability to cut. He's got great handle. And, again, absolute high-flying, you know, John Morant. He's John Morant's probably the closest comp to him coming out. Um, him, Anthony Edwards, you think about these guards – Jaden Ivey gets a little bit heat checky, and that's where I think the Anthony Edwards comp kind of comes in there. But he's a lot smoother than Anthony Edwards was in college, who were like Anthony Edwards is just like brute force. To me, I look at Jaden Ivey, and I'm like, take some stuff with Anthony Edwards, take some stuff with John Morant, and kind of put it together. And that's pretty much Jaden Ivey. I mean, I think he needs to develop a lot on the defensive end, but sort of 75% of players in the NBA. So I, uh, I love that pick for Jaden Ivey. Uh, as well as the next pick, too, Benedict Matherin uh, from going to the Pacers. This kid's story is unbelievable. Comes from Montreal. Not a lot of people knew who he was. And he's been amazing. Um, was a part of the, the international development program the NBA has. Uh, has gone through a lot of trials and tribulations in his life. People think, oh, he's from, he's from Canada, right? It's got to be, oh, everyone's so nice, whatever. He was in like inner city Montreal, went through more shit than 95% of people in the world ever have to go through and has found his way here. And all of a sudden you pair uh, Tyrese Halliburton, who inexplicably still the Kings traded to get DeMontis Sabonis um, with the Orlando, with the, um, with the Indiana Pacers. And now you got this backcourt of Benedict Matherin and Tyrese Halliburton, and you got, Chris Duarte, who 3 and D guy already as a rookie last year, shades of Mikael Bridges all over again. Um, I, I love Bennett. In fact, the only athlete who I think goes toe-to-toe with Jay Nivey in this class, at least from the guard position, is Benedict Matherin. I think it's just – I think it was a home run. I think five and six were probably my two favorite picks of the entire draft. Uh, some of the other ones here in the first round, uh, the Shaden Sharp one, his story is just weird just because we have no he. It's not a great sign for him. And I liked what ESPN did on the broadcast. They tried to kind of make it funny. They called him the, you know, the basketball man of mystery. And they put up like Austin Powers, you know, graphics around him and put him in like an Austin Powers wig. And they try to make it funny. But this dude like was a top player coming out of high school. Um, goes around to a bunch of different high schools in his career, which is not as big of a deal as it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But then he signs, agrees, commits to go to Kentucky and then just never plays. Like just didn't play in a single game. Wasn't hurt. He practiced there, said he was going to come back. Then he didn't left the campus, then came back again. All the scouts only got a chance to see him in practice basically. And then he played in the, the EBYL, which is a, a different basketball league that he played in. And he's basically like, he's kind of like James Harden after he won a couple MVP or after he won his MVP, James Harden, where he was just like dribble the air out of the ball and then put up a step back. But then it goes in and you're kind of like, Holy shit, this dude's insane. Um, but he's just a complete quest question mark. So I have no idea what's going to happen there with Shaden Sharp. 
Uh, Johnny Davis. Actually, sorry, before we get to Johnny Davis, number nine, the Spurs with the most Spursian pick that they've had since Kawhi Leonard, Jeremy Sohan uh, out of Baylor. This kid is, is a bigger, stronger Matisse Thibault an absolute elite defender. Like he will step onto the court in the NBA and be the arguably probably the best wing defender on his team and will be an elite level defender immediately. He tries so hard on defense. He does some of that free safety, Ed Reed ball, you know, Hawking kind of stuff that Matisse does as well. Uh, And just like Matisse, he can't shoot. He can't score, but he can affect the game in in a bunch of different ways. Uh, he's not Draymond, like Draymond couldn't really score coming out of college, but at least he was a really good passer. Doesn't really have that. But what you do have with him is just an absolute baller of a, of a, the, the mentality, the, the, the dog in him, if you want to use the cliche, like that's Jeremy Sohan and our Sokan. And, uh, I'm really excited to see how, how he fits there. Perfect fit with the Spurs. And if pop and, and that team over there do anything similar like they did with Kawhi Leonard and can help develop his his jumper and maybe get him more developed in the offensive side of the ball i mean he maybe he turns into some sort of three and d guy but at least you know you're getting the defense um but there's also a chance that they drafted matisse thibel at number nine overall and as we saw matisse thibel couldn't play in the playoffs not just because of the covid and, and not getting the vaccine thing but because he literally got played off the court no matter how good his defense was his inability to make an open jump shot and allowing whatever team the Sixers were playing, whether it was Toronto or the Heat, to just basically be five on four and leave him wide open in the corner. Um, that's going to be a problem when we talk about playing in the playoffs. But the one thing, again, you're getting from him, he's going to find ways to affect games. He's one of my favorite players in the draft, and I just hope he develops in the offensive side. Uh, Johnny Davis, player out of Wisconsin. I loved this pick. I, I didn't understand quite why he was falling as much as he did. Uh, in games against top 25 teams this year, he was averaging like over 20 points a game. He shows out for big time moments against really other big time teams. He played on a bad Wisconsin team. He's a shot maker. He's shot creator, makes the guys around him better, a little bit undersized, not the most athletic dude in the world, doesn't jump out of the, you know, the gym by any means, but is still a really good player. I love that pick for the Wizards. Might be a little, I mean, he's smaller than Kuzma, but he's kind of Kuzma-esque in that, like, can score well, um, does a bunch of the little stuff you need, tries hard on defense, um, but he does it for more of, like, that two-guard spot as opposed to Kuzma, who's more of that, like, 3-4. So we'll, we'll see how it kind of comes out. Uh, I talked about Usman Dang, or Jang, who's a stud, loved him, going to Oklahoma City. The fact that they got Jang and uh, Chet Holmgren, uh, what an unbelievable draft for Oklahoma City. Uh, and then one of the ones I, I didn't love, this was more um, a player with high upside. And I think it's more of a sign of what's to come. But the Atlanta Hawks drafting A.J. Griffin. Now, A.J. Griffin is, I think, the best pure shooter in this class. Uh, really, really good offensive player. Had two major knee injuries in high school, which is a big concern, obviously. Uh, and even got banged up a little bit at Duke last year. A.J. Griffin to the Hawks feels really redundant for what the Hawks have. However, I think the point of that is that the Hawks already have too many guys, right? They suffer from that. We have too many quality players and none of them are, are elite or do anything else. We saw them move on from Cam Reddish last year and they traded him up to the Knicks. I didn't love the AJ Griffin pick though, because it kind of feels like they added a player that they've already had and it didn't really help them. It doesn't really fix the problems that they have. Um, but look, AJ Griffin, I think if he doesn't have the knee issues, I think is a top 10 pick. So adding shooting around Trey Young helps. But at the same time, we've seen Trey Young a lot in his first couple of years here, um, take a lot of shots. And I'm a little worried. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little worried about that fit. The two picks that I liked here, kind of in the back half of the first round, uh, that I think were just really great, like kind of long shot see how it turns out kind of picks uh the defending champions the golden state warriors drafting patrick baldwin jr at 28 uh patrick baldwin was a i believe he was number eight in the espn top 100 rankings going into last year his dad was the coach at milwaukee 
not the Bucks, the University of Milwaukee or the College. I, I don't know exactly which Milwaukee it is. Um, but his dad was the head coach there. He went there because of family. Uh, it did not work out for him at all. It was a really bad showing and it torched his draft stock. But everything, these high pedigree players, you know, guys like Zaire Williams, who went to Stanford, had a bad career or bad, you know, one year at Stanford, ends up, who he was as well, he was like a top 10 recruit coming out of high school. He ends up going to the Memphis Grizzlies and becomes a really important piece of that team. And now two years into his career, he's playing important minutes for a team that was in, you know, almost made it to the Western Conference Finals. Uh, and, and it was a really good team. And if they had been the two, if they'd been the three seed instead of the two seed, they're probably playing against Golden State in the Western Conference Finals instead of the Dallas Mavericks. So I really like that turnout and that pick um, for the Warriors because it's look, it, it's a chance on a guy with high pedigree, elite athleticism who might have just made a mistake and he went to go play with his parent, with his dad and with family, and it didn't work out for him instead of going somewhere where it was going to challenge him, where it was going to be a, a, a new coach. Because if he had gone to Duke and played for Coach K, if he'd gone to Kentucky, where he could have gone to any of those places, we could be talking about Patrick Baldwin as a top 10 pick. But instead, he makes his decision. He goes and plays for his dad. It doesn't go work out. And now the Warriors could have ended up with the steal of the draft. Similarly, uh, I think just as a rule of thumb, it's typically a pretty good bet more often than not to draft the best Kentucky guard year in, year out. And Ty Ty Washington falls to 29, uh, drafted by the Grizzlies, then gets traded to Minnesota. Another dude who's just that high upside kind of player who there's something about the guards at Kentucky where in that system with Cal, they don't get asked to do a ton. I mean, Devin Booker is the best player that came off of that team, that, that, that loaded team that had like five or six guys drafted and four or five first rounders. And he was like the sixth man on that team, right? Like some, there's something about, I mean, Tyrese Maxey is the obvious one right now too, where he falls all the way to 23, I think, when the Sixers took him. Um, so taking a gamble on that for a team like Minnesota, I, I would expect at some point, whether it's, if it's not this year, because I think he's got two years left on his deal. So if it's not this year, then D'Angelo Russell probably gets moved on from Minnesota. And this could be an heir apparent in a lot of ways. Um, and, and we'll see. And honestly, right after that, two at 30, uh, the Den traded by the Thunder, but then drafted by the Thunder, then traded to the Nuggets, Peyton Watson. Peyton Watson's an interesting story because he was a top-level recruit as well, goes to UCLA, but UCLA brought back all those kids from the Final Four run they had in 2021, and Peyton Watson ends up kind of riding on the bench. And so he didn't get a whole lot of consistent opportunities to go out there and score. And, again, it's kind of that, like, hey, we're going on the pedigree here. And if we can steal him at the end, back end of the first round, he could be a really decent player, really good player. He just didn't get an opportunity to shine in his one year at UCLA because they didn't have room for him. It was a Final Four team where you bring back most of the starters. The top level recruits probably not going to get a chance to go, and he gets a first round grade. He ends up going at the last pick in the first round, but he gets that first round grade nonetheless. He's going to take it. And uh, Peyton Watson. Those last three picks to wrap up the first round, even the the kid that uh, the Heat drafted, Nikola jo Nikola Jovic, not Jokic, Nikola Jovic, uh, really interesting prospect as well. Really glad he didn't end up on the Denver Nuggets because, or maybe not. I mean, it would have been really awesome to see that because I think the amount of times it would just fuck up announcers would be hilarious. <laughs> I feel bad for whoever does the play-by-play -play for the Denver Nuggets at that point, but Jovic uh, goes to the Heat. That feels like a Heat kind of pick. Um, but yeah, all in all, really interesting draft. Uh, there wasn't too much in the second round that jumped out, just a million trades. Um, Jaden Hardy, he was a G League Ignite guy who, I mean, people really, really liked coming out. Again, another dude with high upside who did not get a chance to, uh, or at least went to the G League, did not play well in the G League. Uh, some people thought he was even going to go back to the G League for a second year. He decides to take his chances. He falls all the way to the 37th pick he gets traded to dallas after the kings take him um I mean, who knows right i mean again it's when you're gambling on these high pedigree guys good things typically more often than not like that's a good risk to take in the second round a guy who falls all the way down like that and then hell you never know what's going to happen right never know what's going to happen um all right that's all i got on the pod today really good pod um, we got Dusty Dvorak coming next week, talking college football, more on Arch Manning. 
And hopefully we'll have the crew back for you on Tuesday. If not Tuesday, then definitely on Friday. Uh, we'll get back to our position rankings, which we uh, did not do on Tuesday's pod. And uh, we'll keep you updated with everything. We're, we're, we're about to hit the true dog, day, dog days of summer. Uh, Stanley Cup finals might be wrapped up by then. So maybe we'll do a little hockey talk there as well. Um, so thank you all for listening. Check us out on social media at Read Option Pod. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Take it easy, everybody.